what is it about this idea, about this technology that seems like a kind of silly gimmick at first glance? What is it about that that makes people willing to kind of leave their old lives behind for this? Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Behind the scenes here at the TMBA podcast, we've been thinking so much about investments. In fact, I literally just got out of a two and a half hour conversation with Ian about it. And this has taken us to a lot of interesting places. And one of them is this idea of cryptocurrencies, specifically Bitcoin. It's a strange virtual currency that many people that listen to this show talk about often, but I think so few of us have really taken the time to understand it. This is interesting for many reasons that we're going to talk about with today's interviewee, and there's a lot of resources. So if you want to see all the links that we talk about today, you can just head over to tropicalmba.com slash Bitcoin. So this curiosity about Bitcoin led me to today's guest, Nathaniel Popper, who wrote a book called Digital Gold. I found it extremely compelling. And what I really liked about it was contained in the subtitle. It's called The Inside Story of the Misfits and Millionaires Trying to Reinvent Money. That got me. And what's particularly interesting about the story of Bitcoin is the weird and incredible cast of characters, including the legendary and now infamous Silk Road creator, Russ Albrecht. So we were curious to know what Nathaniel himself found intriguing about Bitcoin and the characters involved, and specifically too about the process of shaping a book based on so many crazy stories. I mean, sometimes you imagine, you know, entrepreneurs on this ride, and I think we've all been there as entrepreneurs, you know, like you hit on something special and you go on this ride. Well, the journeys that the characters behind the Bitcoin story are particularly unique. And so I had to reach out to Nathaniel. So we start this conversation with a bit of a review of where Bitcoin is now, as opposed to its inception in 2009, and a little bit of the ideological battle that's currently underway in the Bitcoin community. Flash trade, free market vigilante, grabbing all the currency he can see. Treasure on my shore, pirate in my sea, making waves like Sandy. It's about a lot of things. I mean, it's about sort of, I think, people trying to figure out how you organize these new online communities. Something like Bitcoin, it's supposed to be sort of governed by code. But, you know, ultimately, people still have to make decisions and you have to figure out how that decision making process should happen. So I think at the broadest level, that's what's happening within Bitcoin, you know, these fights over how to make decisions on a sort of more micro level. I think there's a real debate about what Bitcoin should look like in 10 or 20 years. And some people have this vision that it should be more like a PayPal Visa payment network, you know, something where you can easily and quickly send payments and transactions over the internet. 
And others, I think, believe more strongly in the vision of this as sort of digital gold, an asset that is very secure that you can hold. And maybe it takes you a day to transfer ownership of it because of security. But even if it's a little slower, that's worth it because its primary value is in being this new digital asset that, you know, maybe a refugee fleeing some country who wants to store their money somewhere. They don't have to carry gold bars on them. They can put their money in Bitcoin and access it when they, you know, move around the world as a refugee. So those are two different visions of what Bitcoin might be. And I think for a long time, for the first years of Bitcoin, I think people assumed it could be both of those things. And as time has gone on, I think it's beginning to be clear that Bitcoin can't be everything to everyone. It sort of has to pick. It has to be certain things. And when you are one kind of technology, that means you're not quite as good at doing something else. So I think it's an interesting moment for Bitcoin because there was this utopian vision for it in the first several years that it existed, that it could do all of these different things. And I think, you know, it's maturing and reality is setting in. Let's talk about your book, because the cast of characters that this idea and the marketing of the idea and the software passes through, you call them misfits and millionaires in the title of your book. It's incredible. I mean, you've got different national interests. You've got people with substance abuse problems. You've got the Winklevoss twins. I mean, are they going to make a movie out of this book? Have you been contacted? I've talked with a number of producers. There are some different ways you could approach this story. I think the social network kind of storytelling method could be applied. Part of the difficulty with Bitcoin is that it is so many different things. And with an hour and a half, two hour movie, you want one story. And this is something I actually struggled with in writing the book. A lot of good books find a way to focus as tightly as possible on, you know, one story. And I think in the case of Bitcoin, I kind of considered whether you could pick one person and sort of trace their story over time. But I realized that would really sort of do uh, disservice to the really important essence of Bitcoin, which is that it's all of these different people. It's all these competing ideas sort of coexisting and the way in which this technology made that possible so that people in China could be coming at this and getting excited about this in one way and people in Argentina could be using it and getting excited about it in another way. And all of them could sort of be advancing this cause, which, as you mentioned, is somewhat of just a marketing effort. You know, it's sort of it's getting people excited about this idea and getting people to use it. That's what needed to happen for Bitcoin to spread. Money is as successful as the number of people who are using it. If people stop being willing to use any currency, it is no longer a useful currency. It no longer has value. You need people using it. And it is the very fact that people are using it that makes it valuable. And so, you know, it's something of a marketing effort. It's something of a social network. And so you kind of need to understand a lot of different stories to understand why it got as far as it did. I appreciate that because you could have probably created more drama if you just would have covered the story of Silk Road, for example. It wouldn't have given us the whole universe of these ideas surrounding the idea of Bitcoin. Yeah, I mean, it was something I certainly struggled with. And still, what was hard about it for you? Well, I think the biggest difficulty was 
in paring it down to the smallest number of people and stories possible. You need to have a small enough number of people that people can remember who they are. And I certainly have gotten feedback from this. Some people have felt there was one too many or three too many characters for them to really keep track of. But that was really the biggest effort that I had to make during the book was constantly paring people down. And, you know, it meant that people whose lives I spent months following, I just had to leave them on the cutting room floor entirely because, you know, ultimately they weren't essential, central enough to the story of Bitcoin and what happened to it. Who was the millionaire or misfit that was like the germ of the idea that inspired you to make you want to write this book? Good question. The misfit who made me think I needed to write the book was a kid named Charlie Shrem, who ended up going to jail. I had actually been following Bitcoin for about a year and, you know, initially wasn't taking it very seriously. My first story was actually about the Winklevoss twins and their big holdings of Bitcoin. But over time, as I continued writing these stories, it struck me that this was something more than just a kind of gimmick. This was something more than just an online fad. There was something really interesting here about the idea of a new money. And there were, I realized over time, really serious people working on this who thought there was some real innovation here. I think I didn't necessarily understand immediately what that innovation was, but I realized that, you know, really serious computer scientists saw something really exciting in this. Can I uh, start? We're good to go? You're clear. Yeah, you're good to go. Excellent. Friends, citizens, Bitcoiners, there is nothing new under the sun. My name is Charlie Shrem, and I speak to you today from under house arrest. Yeah, so just to give you a little bit of background about Charlie Shrem, in 2014, he was sentenced to two years in prison for aiding and abetting the operation of an unlicensed money transmitting business related to the Silk Road. Charlie had started trading in Bitcoin in 2011 while still in college. Frustrated with the length of time it took to buy and sell Bitcoin on exchange sites, he and a friend started BitInstant, a company that charged a fee for users to purchase and make purchases with Bitcoins at over 700,000 locations. I met Charlie Shrem. I was doing a story on somebody else, actually. And Charlie was just sort of going on about how Bitcoin had changed his life and how he traveled the world and met these people. And everywhere he went, he had a group of people who he could stay with because of Bitcoin. And he had this shared passion and it was going to change the world. It made me realize the degree to which people had just kind of thrown their old lives behind to chase this, the promise that they saw in Bitcoin. And I think it was seeing that, I think I realized, okay, there's something here worth exploring. What is it about this idea, about this technology that seems like a kind of silly gimmick at first glance? What is it about that that makes people willing to kind of leave their old lives behind for this? And so I think that was the germ of the idea that I wanted to then explore. If I was a screenwriter, I would put him at the center of this, too, because he's just such a rare character. This guy who's like, he's so young, he's so unpolished, but he's doing these insanely incredible things. 
What was the process like getting the information out of them and putting it into the book? You know, you have so much insider information here, it seems. Yeah, again, I mean, on the one hand, one of the things that was great about this book was that people were so excited about having been a part of this story. And they really felt like they were in the middle of some epic changing event or a lot of people wanted to share. I mean, I had to kind of draw it out of people. The Winklevoss twins at first didn't necessarily want to share everything. But once I had their work with Charlie Schramm, once I had it from Charlie's side, I certainly, everybody else wanted to then have their side included. And they were willing to share, you know, the warts and all. They realized that part of what was so interesting here was the struggles and the challenges. So while I was reporting this, you know, this was after Charlie had been arrested at the airport. That meeting I mentioned just now with Charlie, that was a couple weeks before he got arrested. Then he got arrested and he continued working with me. You know, I spent time with him. He was under house arrest and I would go over to his house and he talked with me. But ultimately, you know, as we mentioned earlier, the, the hardest part was paring it down because there's so many crazy tales in this, you know, so many people who gained and lost so much, so many sort of swings in fortune that a lot of it was just trying to figure out, okay, what were the really essential moments in the rise of this technology? One of the things that jumps off the page is these emails they're writing to each other. Because I think about in my business, it's like, confirm receipt of email, best regards, you know, see you at the meeting next Wednesday. I mean, these people are pouring their hearts out to each other, you know, saying horrible things. It's almost like email exchanges between lovers or something. Let me zoom in with an example here. Here's an email from Ross Albrecht to Richard Bates. My site has a 40-minute spot on a national radio program. Freaking crazy. You got to keep my secret, buddy. Richard Bates. I haven't told anyone, man. I don't intend to. Ross, I know I can trust you. And are they just forwarding these emails to you and you're sifting through everything? I mean, to a degree, I certainly had to work with them before they were opening up their inboxes. But they did view this as real history. And they, I think they wanted that to be captured. And they realized that the battles were part of that history. And I think at so many points, the fights between people, some of it was personal, but there was always this undercurrent of a battle over the soul of Bitcoin, over what this thing would mean. You know, people had, again, these grand visions of what this would do, that it would take down the government and raise up people in poverty and give them access to the financial system and provide alternatives to, you know, central banks and Wall Street. At so many points, you could see these fights between these people coming down to these different visions for what this was going to mean. And so the Winklevoss twins made this investment in Charlie Schrem's company. And Charlie Schrem had already teamed up with a number of other real sort of ideological firebrands behind Bitcoin, guys like Eric Voorhees and Roger Ver. And, you know, pretty quickly with the Winklevoss twins, there was a sense that they're too interested in the business side of this and not enough in the world-changing philosophy behind this. And that dispute, that kind of dispute, sort of ran through so much of this. I mean, a lot of it was also about personalities and the type of guys who were drawn to this, and it is mostly guys, the type of personalities that determines what the software ends up looking like. And so, you know, you come at it from both sides. One of the characters that also jumps off the page with Charlie is Ross. Ross Ulbricht, yeah. 
This morning, the FBI says the 29-year-old seemingly clean-cut entrepreneur was living a secret life as a digital drug lord operating an online black market bazaar called Silk Road. Now Ross Ulbricht is in federal custody, arrested Tuesday, and the site he allegedly ran shut down after a two-year undercover operation. My understanding is that you've never spoken with him. Have you tried? Has he responded to you at all? Can you tell a little bit about the background of Ross and his role in this? I think everybody has reached out to Ross Ulbricht since he was arrested. As far as I know, he accidentally gave one interview in prison in San Francisco in the week after he was arrested, but otherwise has not spoken. And, you know, I think his only goal now is not to be in prison for life. And so I think he doesn't want to do anything that will jeopardize his achieving that mission, getting out of prison one day, because right now he is in prison for life and he's, you know, doing whatever he can to shorten that sentence. He's going to appeal the sentence of conviction. So he hasn't spoken, but the documents that came out in his trial are just an incredible trove and an an incredible window into a person's psyche and soul. He kept so much information on the laptop that was captured on the day he was arrested. He kept these diaries of all the transactions, all the money he made, but also a diary of his own thinking at various points along the way. And you can really see the evolution of this person in this very raw way over the course of the development of the Silk Road. In many ways, you can understand more about him. I could understand, I think, more about him than I could about a lot of other characters who opened up to me, but, you know, they didn't share their diaries with me. They might have shared their emails from certain times, but they didn't share, you know, their innermost thoughts, which we have for Ross Ulbricht because of how much was on that laptop when he was captured. He really was a central character in the story of Bitcoin. So that's an important story to understand. Let me zoom in here to read you an excerpt from Ross Ulbricht's diary. I told her I have secrets. She already knows I work in Bitcoin, which is terrible. I'm so stupid. Everyone knows I am working on a Bitcoin exchange. I always thought honesty was the best policy, and now I don't know what to do. I should have just told everyone I'm a freelance programmer or something, but I had to tell half-truths. It felt wrong to lie completely, so I tried to tell the truth without revealing the bad part, but now I'm in a jam. Well, and he was very relatable because of that. You know, towards the beginning of the book, he's just a guy who's not really doing so well, has some ambition, wants to make something of himself, gets on this roller coaster, you know, is commandeering help from anywhere he can get it. And then things happen fast. And all of a sudden, there's this email chain that gets intercepted where he allegedly offers somebody money to have somebody killed. And that to me was this, I almost had to put the book down for a little while because you have this like relatable character. And then all of a sudden, all American Ross from Austin, Texas decides that somebody needs to die, allegedly. What was it like reading the diaries for you? Yeah, I mean, to see the evolution of a person as quickly as he evolved, you know, I mean, he was really running this from, I guess, the beginning of 2011 to 2013. So really, 
you know, two years, maybe a little more than two years. And to see at the beginning of his time running this thing, he agonized over lying to people about what he was doing. He really, you know, was this young, earnest guy who wanted to live by his values and wanted to be honest with people and wanted to live life in a way that felt honest to him. And to see, you know, that, and then two years later, here's a guy who I think because of the power he had assumed on the Silk Road and because of his sort of grandiose vision of this thing, but also because I think the way the Silk Road, you know, it was a computer-driven community in which you never met other real humans. You know, you could distance yourself from other people. The other people in this community became screen names. So, you know, he was dealing with them all day, but, you know, he never saw a flesh and blood human. And I think over the course of two years, you know, that combined with his increasingly grandiose vision of what the Silk Road meant, I think led him to a place where he was willing to, you know, commission a hit on somebody. It's significant and sort of mysterious that it seems like nobody actually got killed. It seemed like there were so many scams and blackmails going on that Bross paid for somebody to be killed, but the person was not actually, and he thought they were killed, but it seems that nobody was ever actually murdered. Although, you know, I don't know, maybe time will tell, maybe we'll learn more about that. But the fact of the matter is, in these documents, it seems pretty clear that Ross did commission these hits. And you can even see in his diaries, his kind of response and his feeling like this makes me uncomfortable, but I had to do it. One of the other outstanding characters in this story is an Argentinian named, and forgive me if I get this wrong, Wences Casares, founder of the Bitcoin wallet Zappo. Now, it's crazy when you're reading this book, Digital Gold, you realize how much, despite the fact of Bitcoin being online and all this open source stuff and people meeting up on Google Hangouts and YouTube and things, that so many of the critical moments happened in person when power brokers or people that had power or information met each other, often at ad hoc conferences and events, and particularly at events when Wences was present. And that's something that I wanted to ask Nathaniel about. Numbers move on a Times Square skyscraper. Bitcoin, forget green paper. Swallow that like a lifesaver. Skip town. See you later, any bandit. We'll take what he can get. Wences over time sort of let me into his story. I think and he was a character who people knew less about, but I kept hearing about him in Silicon Valley circles as the sort of Pied Piper of Bitcoin in Silicon Valley. And as I probed with both Wences and people in Silicon Valley, there were a few of these events that people came back to where they said, you know, I remember Wences talking about it over dinner at this conference and all these people getting so excited that, you know, a day later they were calling their assistants to wire money to Mt. Gox in Japan to buy Bitcoins. You can see in the calendar these events and you could see how the price would spike after them because you had all of these millionaires leaving these events where they had met Wences and gotten sort of baptized to the religion of Bitcoin and starting to buy big stakes of Bitcoins. Wences had a couple of stories that he liked.
like to tell to kind of make it real why Bitcoin was important to him. You know, for him, it so often went back to Argentina growing up in this place where inflation was an enormous problem and you couldn't trust the financial system. And here was, you know, Bitcoin, this asset where you could store your money, where you could move it easily, where you could do all these things that weren't possible in Argentina. And I think he probably made a lot of people realize that Bitcoin might be most useful outside of the United States, outside of Western Europe. I think a lot of Americans particularly have trouble seeing much value in Bitcoin because the basic things that Bitcoin does, storing value, transacting, sending money around, our financial system does it pretty well. You know, our credit cards work pretty well. Our bank accounts work pretty well. But in a lot of the world, that's not the case. And so I think Wences made a lot of people realize or, or think was that this could be valuable outside the United States in places where there isn't a great functioning bank system. People maybe who don't have an identity card or a passport, you know, they want to buy something online. And here's this new thing that allows them to set up a bank account and send money online without having to go through a traditional financial system that's excluded them. It's funny how that baton gets passed like at the beginning. It's like with the geeks and the activists and those scorned by their governments and maybe even the criminals. And then it gets passed along to some entrepreneurs. And eventually there's Wences, the exact opposite of the internet, sitting at a dinner table with six powerful people. And you can see the line going through Andreessen Horowitz's firm investing in companies like Coinbase. Yeah. And it's continuing on because my book, I think, sort of takes the evolution of Bitcoin course, what we've had more recently is the excitement about the blockchain and this technology that Bitcoin sort of introduced. And now this is the thing in central banking circles, in Wall Street, in the financial industry. This is the technology that everybody's convinced is going to sort of fundamentally change these businesses because it will provide a new way to sort of keep information, keep ledgers, do transactions quickly without costly intermediaries. And so now you have the kind of pie pipers of the blockchain who are out selling this concept to central bankers who are themselves now getting excited about this. And so you hear about people at the Fed and at the Bank of England who are the kind of wences within the Bank of England or within the Fed. It is a very different vision than the one that Wences was peddling, but the kind of visionary, you know, utopian ideas of what this can do, it, it kind of keeps expanding. Yeah, you end the book with, you know, so Wences goes from being at an exclusive power broker's dinner to running up to Bill Gates and essentially saying you're spending with the Gates Foundation specifically and in places like Africa, you're spending millions of dollars to make poor people poor. I mean, what a ballsy. It was a ballsy thing. It's, it's just the kind of thing I think that Wences, he is why he's a good salesman. He's willing to do things like that. And that was an event that a lot of people do remember from that conference. It was kind of this memorable thing to see somebody really confronting Bill Gates. And Bill Gates resisted and pushed back. But from everything that I heard, Bill Gates was, I think, brought around in a certain way to this technology and to the possibility that there could be something really exciting here. And so today you see the Gates Foundation, and actually I'm you know, doing reporting on that now, the Gates Foundation and the work they're doing with 
blockchain-like technology as a way to set up more inclusive, transparent financial systems in you know, Africa and the developing world. What is the promise of the blockchain? Why is the Canadian government ramped up about it? Why is the Gates Foundation looking into it? What is the promise of this technology? I mean, I think at the end of the day, it's something that sounds really boring. It's not as exciting to talk about or think about as Bitcoin, which was the idea of a new money, a new form of money. With blockchain, some people are using it, want to use this technology to evolve their currencies. But at the root of it, I think what the blockchain is about is new ways of keeping reliable databases. And that sounds really boring and wonky, but it turns out that keeping sort of uncorrupted data among lots of people is this kind of core job that a lot of companies in the world are involved in. You know, keeping databases among lots of people, among a distributed network of people, and making sure that everybody has an agreed upon record of what happens. And, you know, when you think about it, that is what banks are doing to some degree. You know, they're keeping records of transactions over time. And that's, you know, what stock exchanges are obviously doing. And that's what so much trading in the world is about. But it's also what music distribution companies are doing. They're keeping records of who listened to which songs and who should get paid as a result of having listened to that song. Is this what Mark Andreessen calls the Byzantine generals problem? Yeah, I mean, I think that is, it's a little more general than the Byzantine generals problem, but that's sort of the root of it. Bitcoin sort of solved it in a particular way. And a lot of people, what they're doing, they're solving it in ways that don't necessarily use the exact technology within Bitcoin. And they're coming at it from different angles. But Bitcoin sort of got them thinking about the fact that maybe there's a better way to do this, a better way to keep information, uncorrupted information, and reliable information over large groups of people. Central banks are thinking about how can we have a digital currency where we can actually track each dollar. It's not just something we put in an Excel spreadsheet. It's actually a digital item that we can track as it moves around the financial system. We don't just, you know, subtract one from our ledger and you add one to your ledger. Something actually moves. There's a sort of digital good that moves around. And that's a new way to sort of keep and track currency. So, you know, there's something very fundamental to what people are thinking this might do in the information economy. It could be a big thing. I've heard potential, like people say that, you know, if you're going to donate money to an NGO, for example, you could bake in a basically a contractual agreement when the money gets released, when certain things happen. Final question. After having followed the currency for so long, do you hold any of your money in Bitcoin? And if so, how would you buy it? Because I think most of the people listening to the show, they don't have Bitcoin. They don't know even the first step. I just as a journalist, you know, just like we don't own the stocks that we write about, I'm not supposed to own, you know, a currency that I'm writing about, you know, its success, its failures. I own a very small amount enough to sort of play with it. You know, I can try out services. I don't own enough so that it will ever matter to me financially, just so that I can sort of use the system. And you don't need to own very much to do that. There are sort of essentially 
Bitcoin brokers that will sell you existing Bitcoins at the market price. The most well-known in the United States is Coinbase. You know, you're a little bit removed from the Bitcoin network itself because, you know, it's sort of like instead of buying the stock on the New York Stock Exchange, you're buying it from a broker who goes and buys it from the stock exchange. But once you own Bitcoins from Coinbase, you can then sort of take them out and use them in all the other services. And, you know, with a service like Coinbase or Circle, it is as easy, certainly, as buying a stock on E-Trade, probably easier. I'm definitely never in the business of suggesting it as an investment. I mean, it is incredibly volatile. Right. Well, you can't help but thinking, you know, when you're reading the book, if only I would have bought this stuff when the book was written. (laughs) Right. Although it's been through a lot, even since the book was published, the price had fallen, I think, to... 200, 250, I guess when it was published. A year earlier when I began writing it, the price was, you know, close to a thousand. So that was the peak where a lot of people bought it. Yeah, certainly it's gone up. It's sort of doubled in value since I think the book was out. But, you know, it looked like it was going much further recently in recent weeks. And then, you know, the brakes really got put on and it's been actually sliding in recent days. So it's a roller coaster ride. This is far from a proven technology. And I think there are a lot more of those kind of roller coaster rides ahead. Flash trade, free market vigilante, grabbing all the currency he can see. Treasure on my shore, pirate in my sea, making waves like sand. Are you buying Bitcoin? I seriously want to know. Let me know. TropicalMBA.com slash Bitcoin. I mean, do you believe this stuff? Like Mark Andreessen and many other venture capitalists, that cryptocurrencies are the future of our economy? I'm genuinely curious, and I think if you are too, that this book, Digital Gold, is a great place to get started. At minimum, you will be entertained. Thanks to Nathaniel Popper for joining us. We'd love to hear what you think about this. We're very interested ourselves, thinking about getting involved in a very small way, but just to learn about how these things work, because I do think that there's so much potential here. We'll post all the links to the book, things we referenced during this conversation at tropicalmba.com slash Bitcoin. Thank you, as always, for joining us, and we'll be back next week. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.